starting point for the talk today was an image, the image of how moral philosophers often think of the subject in terms of a map, um, a map of possible positions. We divide up the whole terrain of moral philosophy into normative ethics and meta-ethics, and we then divide normative ethics into deontological theories, consequen consequentialist theories, and virtue theories. And we can also then divide up the terrain of meta-ethics, thinking, for example, of cognitivists and non-cognitivists, particularists and anti-particularists, and so on. My image, then, was of this sort of map and of Iris Murdoch and her approach to ethics being totally off the map. My idea, my original idea for the talk was that I would lay out seven different ways in which Murdoch's thought didn't fit into the map, seven ways in which her thought was deeply discordant with the assumptions of contemporary moral philosophy. And then the idea was that I would go on and talk about each of the seven points of disagreement. So I started with a list of the seven points. But then <clears throat> when I went on to examine supposedly each of the seven, I never got beyond the first. The first point opened up and became a bigger and much more demanding issue than I'd realized. So today I am beginning with a list, which I hope you have. I will briefly look at it, but the rest of the talk is about Murdoch's unusual understanding of philosophical method. So the list. The first thing is Murdoch's rejection of the prevalent picture we have of available methods for philosophy. I mean, prevalent, especially in analytic philosophy. I will say more about that picture in part two, but here I will just summarize the picture as presenting us basically with two types of philosophical method either the armchair method of reliance on supposed intuitions, or alternatively, methods in which we engage with forms of empirical scientific research. Murdoch uses what I think you can call a kind of empiricism, but it is totally different from what we usually think of as empiricism. I would call it an empiricism of reflection on human experience. My claim is not that Murdoch is unique in being a philosopher who uses this method, but rather that within analytic philosophy anyway, it is not thought about seriously as a philosophical method. It's pretty much invisible. Anyway, that's item one on the list. Second on my list is Murdoch's anti-dictationism. Dictationism is a word I use for the idea that branches of philosophy outside moral philosophy dictate to moral philosophy what the possibilities are. For example, metaphysics supposedly tells us what kind of entities there are, and philosophy of language gives us an account of language. And moral philosophy then supposedly has to fit into the general structures fixed by metaphysics and philosophy of language. I could mention David Wiggins as another philosopher who does not accept that picture. The third thing on my list is Murdoch's rejection of the usual way of thinking of what concepts are. Concepts and conceptual configurations for Murdoch include ramified understandings of the world and our place in it. Fourth is Murdoch's insistence 
on the problematic character of what is included in the sphere of the moral, and equally the problematic character of what supposedly isn't. Here, Murdoch is deeply opposed to the way many moral philosophers writing handbooks of ethics or introductions to moral philosophy just assume that they can define their subject in a sentence or two, for example, by a quick reference to right and wrong. The fifth item on the list is really a consequence of the fourth. If there is no clear way to delineate the sphere of the moral, the idea of there being a subject of metaethics is made questionable, since metaethics is supposedly about the realm of ethics. For example, there is supposedly a meta-ethical question whether there are moral properties. That question itself supposes that in the non-moral realm, there are genuine properties. And so we can then examine the contrast between these properties and what purport to be properties within the moral realm. But if we don't have a clear idea what is supposed to be in the moral realm and what is supposed to be non-moral, the question itself has the ground cut out from under it. The sixth item on my list is Murdoch's rejection of any idea that intentional action or characteristically human action has some basic pattern that philosophers can lay out. I would put in here also the importance that Murdoch attaches to the ways in which we can move towards a clearer understanding of reality which can then enter into how we go on to act. And the seventh item is Murdoch's conception of the field of moral philosophy itself. Moral philosophy may be understood in very different ways, and we may simply not see what possibilities there are. Well, that's the end of part one. In part two, I'm going to look at an example of the method of reflective empiricism the example of Peter Strawson's essay, Freedom and Resentment. Much of what I'm going to be saying in parts two and three is relevant to Murdoch, but not explicitly about her. I get back to explicit discussion of her work in part four. Anyway, here is why I take up Peter Strawson's essay next. The day that I started working on part two, there was on the lighter blog, a statement by Stephen Stitch, a statement that you have on the handout. Stitch says that many contemporary philosophers think that they can do philosophy without getting into the natural or social sciences. If facts are needed, they rely on their supposed intuition or they simply invent them. The results of philosophy done this way are, according to Stitch, typically sterile and often silly. There are no philosophical questions worth answering, nor any productive philosophical method that does not engage the sciences. But there are lots of deeply important questions about minds, morals, language, culture, and more. But to make progress on them, we need anything science can tell us and any method that works. And he means especially there to include experimental methods of the sort used in social science. The picture you get in that quotation from Stitch is that there are two general kinds of approach in philosophy. One involves attention to and engagement with sciences, and the other is the armchair method of reliance on supposed intuitions. 
Stitch has elsewhere suggested that there is also a kind of half-baked empiricism practiced by some philosophers who lean heavily on speculation about empirical matters. Maybe that's what he meant when he spoke about philosophers inventing facts. In an article which he wrote with John Doris, they chose as one of their examples of how philosophy should not be done, Strawson's essay, Freedom and Resentment. They take Strawson to have been speculating in that essay about our interpersonal relations using only evidence from people like himself. Strawson's essay is for them a good example of how not to make progress in philosophy. Now, I think Strawson's essay is actually a fine example of the kind of attention to experience that in fact Murdoch recommends. And many people think of his essay as a striking example of philosophical progress. So that's why it seems like a good example for me to focus on. I'm going to summarize the essay briefly as not everybody may be familiar with it. Strawson began from the dispute in philosophy between compatibilists and incompatibilists about whether the truth of determinism would mean that we are never free or responsible. He wanted us to reconceive the dispute, which he thought had been over-intellectualized. And what he did was draw attention to the role in our lives of what he calls reactive attitudes attitudes like the resentment evoked in us by being treated with contempt or callously or malevolently, and also attitudes like appreciation for being treated with goodwill or esteem. These attitudes are suspended or inhibited when, for example, apparently offensive behavior turns out to have been unintentional or when the agent was under great strain and so on. These attitudes have different forms in different cultures, but are part of any recognizably human form of life. And even supposing we were to discover that all actions were determined, we could certainly take it to be reasonable to keep on with these attitudes given their role in our lives. Strawson's paper shifted our whole understanding of what we could take to be relevant to discussion of freedom and determinism. Strawson took himself to be drawing attention to a commonplace, the importance that we attach to the attitudes and intentions towards us of other people, and the dependence of our reactions on our beliefs about the circumstances and situations of those others. Strawson pointed out that that commonplace is at the center of a large field of phenomena much explored in imaginative literature. So this is what I want you to think about. If Strawson can ask his readers to remind themselves of this field of phenomena explored in much literature, the background of this relation to his readers is a significant fact. This is the fact that there is an enormous range of human experience that has been thought about, thought about well and sometimes less well. And part of education and part of general growing up is being exposed to what many different people have made of this variety and range of experience. And part of education and general growing up is becoming, to, becoming able to connect these things with one's own experience. 
some of our thought about experience does feed into science and what you could call proto-science. But our responsiveness to experience and thoughts about it feed ideas of what is important to us, ideas about how things matter and of what sorts of connections illuminate experience. One of the things achieved by education and general growing up is awareness of how very different from our own the responses to experience may be of people distant from ourselves in time or place or culture, and also awareness of deep similarities between our responses and those of people distant from us. Thinking well about such things is learned, and it is distinct from learning the kinds of use of intelligence that go into scientific investigation. Anyway, the reader whom Strawson has in mind is someone who can connect his or her own experience with the thoughts about experience in the enormous range of thinkings about such things that we have inherited. Well, I need to say something more about Stephen Stitch's general view, and then I'll look at his specific criticism of Strawson. In an essay on moral psychology, Stitch and John Doris say that if a philosopher is making claims about the psychological contours of human life, the claims require empirical substantiation of a kind that can be provided only by the empirical human sciences. And that view effectively rules out the philosophical method that I think Murdoch uses and defends, and also the method that Strawson uses. I'm going to turn now to some of these specific grounds of complaint adduced by Stitch and Doris against Strawson's essay. They suggest that Strawson draws on knowledge of the reactive attitudes of people like himself, but since philosophers are not the only people whose personal relations involve reactive attitudes, Strawson's claims about these attitudes exemplify the bad way philosophers go in for speculation when they have no real facts. Now, this is quite weird as criticism of Strawson, since his claims are not based on what he takes to be prevalent among people he knows. The basis of his claims is not social scientific investigation with a very narrow sample. Strawson emphasizes a range of phenomena explored in much literature, reflecting the lives of people in a wide range of circumstances and cultures. And the great variety and range of cases is at the heart of his claim. Stitch and Doris's idea that Strawson's claim rests on his knowledge of philosophers and others of his own milieu reflects their belief that if a philosopher makes a claim about moral psychology, then if he has any data at all, the data may be presumed to come from observation of people he was in a position to observe. And then of course, the obvious weakness of the approach would be the limited cases actually available to Strawson as an observational basis for his claim. Anyway, my first point in response to Stitch and Doris's criticism is that they shouldn't take Strawson to be basing his claims on the attitudes of philosophers and other people like himself, because that's not what he was doing. And my second point is that they should not assume 
that if Strawson is indeed saying something about human psychology, the basis of what he says must be observations that he was in a position to make. That is the idea that leads them to criticize Strawson for having too narrow an observational basis. But what Strawson is drawing on is his own reflections on experience and the reflections on experience embedded in a rich tradition that has a complex relation to our ordinary thinking. It's useful here to bring in something that Bernard Williams says about how we can learn from the ancient Greeks. In discussing why we read and think about them, Williams says they don't merely tell us about themselves, they tell us about us. He means that their understanding of human agency, responsibility, regret, and necessity can illuminate our own understanding and can show us what might be missing in our own conceptions. But Williams's point doesn't apply just to the ancients, but to what we can learn from all the traditions available to us of reflection on experience and of responses to what is in those traditions. See the quotations in the handout from Jeff Dyer and from Iris Murdoch. Dyer about the ongoing thing of the way we learn stuff through literature and the humanities and Murdoch on literature as teaching us how to picture and understand human situations. Strawson on the reactive attitudes is philosophy being empirical all right, but that doesn't mean that his claims rest on observations that he was in a position to make. He is, I'm suggesting, drawing on the sorts of things we learn from literature and the humanities. There is indeed a question how what is available to us in cultural traditions can inform our thought. One way, and I'm going to regard this as relatively less important, is that what we have available in these traditions can provide a rich evidential basis concerning human life and feelings, attitudes, and modes of thought. We can gather an enormous amount of information from what is thus available. But this, what you might call sociological information, is not what Bernard Williams meant, or what Dyer meant, or what Murdoch meant, when they speak of what we can learn from what is in these traditions. Nor is it relevant to Strawson's aims. He says his remarks are commonplaces, meant to keep before our minds what it is like to be involved in our ordinary interpersonal relationships. But if Strawson is talking about us and our relationships, who are this, who is this we? Um, Bernard Williams suggests an answer. He describes his own use of the word we, and he adds that what he says about his own use is also true of the word we is more generally used in philosophy, particularly in ethics. The word we in philosophy does not have some fixed group that it designates. It expresses an invitation. It isn't a matter, William says, of I telling you what I and others think, but of my asking you to consider how far you and I think some things and perhaps need to think others. This invitational use of the word we is indeed what we find in Strawson's essay 
and Murdoch also addresses us, the us being open and invitational. So a third point of objection to the Stitch Doris reading of Strawson's essay is that they miss the significance of Strawson's use of the words we and our when he speaks of our reactive attitudes. They miss what I have called following Bernard Williams, the invitational character of the language. This is not half-baked scientific language, but a different sort of linguistic activity. Now, I do think there are questions about our uses of the word we, but at this point, I simply want to note that there are troublesome questions here, even consistent with what I take from Bernard Williams, that our use of the word we is not a kind of sociological reporting based on observation. Here you might ask, but how can we learn about the world except through observation? I'm suggesting that there is a different kind of learning that is at stake, a learning how to think, how to think about ourselves, about human life, about experience and desire and death, about relations with others and love and hatred, a learning what concepts, what images, what stories are good to think about such things with. Strawson tells us that human life has in it, interestingly and significantly, our minding whether the actions of others reflect goodwill or indifference or contempt. He describes what this comes to. He invites us to take this mattering to us up into our philosophical thought about freedom and determinism. Reflection on experience can then change how we understand the problems, how we see the options. I can now turn back to Stitch and Doris. Their criticism of Strawson as engaged in speculation about human relations reflects they're simply not even seeing as a possibility that Strawson can be read as engaging in a humanistic activity as opposed to being engaged in doing social science in a very third-rate sort of way. And similarly, Stitch's insistence in the quotation in the handout that philosophical progress depends on attention to and engagement with sciences excludes the idea that philosophical progress might come from a humanistic style of attention to human experience. And further, Stitch's insistence that philosophical claims about human psychology require to be substantiated by science simply rules out from philosophy humanistic discourse about our psychology or treats such discourse as half-baked empirical speculation. I think what is involved in the Stitch Doris criticism of Strawson is not just a rejection of humanistic philosophy, but also implicitly a rejection of the entire humanistic enterprise as a form of learning about human life. I don't think Stitch and Doris are just being scientistic if scientism is a matter of trying to get philosophy to model itself on science. They are being scientistic, but there is indeed something more than that in their criticism of Strawson. Implicitly, at least, there is an erasing of the very idea of the ongoing thing of the way we learn stuff through literature and the humanities. 
So in the next part of the talk, that's part three, I look at that ongoing thing. I think the attitude, the attitude to it that I see as implicitly present in Stitch and Doris is interesting. And we can't see what's involved in that attitude unless we see more clearly what the ongoing thing itself is. The basis of the Stitch view is that we can't make progress in philosophy if we make claims that are apparently meant to be about the world, but which do not have the backing that they need in order to be genuinely responsive to the world. I'm going to look at a reply to that argument based on Wittgenstein. In lectures, Wittgenstein said that there were two different things that one could mean by correspondence to reality. There was first of all, the kind of correspondence that is characteristic of empirical claims, like claims about how many chairs there are in this room. But one could also speak in a quite different way of an individual word like the word to, for example, as corresponding to reality. This would be a matter of there being all sorts of things in the world through which the word to comes to be enormously useful and important to us. We couldn't do without it or say the word perhaps. Wittgenstein himself uses this idea in connection with mathematics, but I want to try to apply it more generally to things that are good to think with. I want to suggest that we can speak of some word or concept or idea as corresponding to reality. When given the world and given our nature and interests, it is good and useful to think with. One example might be the concept of every other one. The world and life might be such that we had no use for that concept, but it is in fact useful, though we cannot lay out specific features of the world that make it so. Another kind of example of this sort of correspondence to reality would be the way a particular sentence may be useful, a proverb or saying that comes in handy in numerous different situations and is made useful by complex features of our life. It doesn't describe those features, but we use it and it is in common currency because reality makes it useful. Proverbs, jokes, modes of thought, images, as they are available within a culture, may be thought of as belonging to a vocabulary that we may share a vocabulary for thinking with. Bernard Williams de develops that sort of point in the book, Shame and Necessity, where he argues that, that there are ideas that the ancient Greeks had that are good for us to think with. Their, uh, their ideas are in some ways like ours and in some ways different. And it is precisely because of the differences that they are good for us to think of, to think with. They show us ways that our ideas about justice and responsibility might be less good. It is not just ideas that are good to think with. It may be whole texts. Macbeth, the play Macbeth, might one, one might well think, is good for thinking with. If it is indeed good to think with, that's because of, of a diffuse and complex reality that we don't need to be able to set out. There are also things we think with that we might well be better off not thinking with. So for example, during and after World War I, questions came up about the cultural traditions and images 
and heroic stories that had been central in thinking about war. Those who had fought in the war reflected on these images and stories in relation to their own experience and argued that the inherited traditions were bad for thinking with, were dishonest and should be given up. I have on the handout a quotation from George Steiner that works of art embody an expository reflection on a value judgment of the inheritance and context to which they pertain. I would want to say that can be true also of philosophical works. Strawson's freedom and resentment very much is a reflection on and a value judgment of the inheritance and context to which it pertains. And I would also say that it is itself an incremental contribution to the ways we learn stuff through literature and the humanities. It is itself now something good to think with. One of the ways philosophy makes progress is in making in incremental contributions to what is available for thinking about life and experience through reflecting on and responding to experience and through reflecting on and responding to past ways of reflecting on and responding to experience. Anyway, my basic argument in parts two and three is that philosophical reflection on experience can be a good philosophical method as illustrated by Strawson's essay. Strawson's essay illustrates also that what is available for thinking with may well be challenged. Someone may argue that such and such mode of thought and response is not good for thinking with. And indeed Strawson's essay itself was in part a response to just such a challenge to the whole notion of responsibility. Well, there is an objection that might be raised to the argument that I have been sketching so far. The objection is that it is all very well to think of our having a vocabulary of things to think with, but we can ask of any element in such a vocabulary, whether a language that incorporated that element would thereby be more empirically adequate, more adequate in expressing genuine knowledge of how things are. But the objection would continue that that is not a question that can be answered humanistically. The humanistic business of incrementally adding to our modes of thought about life and the world and incrementally subjecting them to criticism is not directed towards getting our thoughts to reflect more closely how things are. The objection continues. That humanistic process doesn't lead to our learning anything except how we feel like talking. So, so far as philosophy aspires to being a genuinely cognitive endeavor, it has no need for such humanistic methods. Such methods cannot contribute to genuine progress in philosophy. So that objection is directed against the whole idea that we can learn stuff from literature and the humanities except incidentally, as we might be able to pick up from a novel, facts about Victorian socialize. The objection is fundamentally that cognition involves finding out what the world is like, and it's a matter of proto-science and ultimately of more fully developed science. So if one takes the humanities not to be involved in investigating in that scientific sort of way, 
what the world is like, it becomes impossible to take them seriously as cognitive endeavors. Although they may give us concepts and images and ideas for thinking with, the concepts and so on are not subjected to any tests for empirical adequacy. They cannot therefore contribute to progress on any question about minds, morals, language, or culture. Anyway, that is the objection. Part four. Iris Murdoch, even in her very early work, was concerned with the sort of objection I just sketched. Her response had two parts. She tried to present as questionable the views that underlie the objection I've just set out, and she gave examples that she took to be convincing. Her two types of response are the topic of this section. I'm going to begin part four with a sketch of the kind of metaphysical view that underlies the objection, taking Quine as an example. Quine's naturalism belongs very clearly to the philosophical tradition that Murdoch was criticizing. He takes the questions about human knowing that interest philosophers to be questions that are answerable by natural scientists. The science of psychology investigates how human subjects produce a theory of the natural world when the surfaces of their bodies undergo various sorts of sensory stimulation. Quine gives us a picture of what it is for us to be knowers, cognitive beings. As knowers, we are makers of a theory of the natural world, a theory made from the input of the irradiation of our retinas, the stimulation of our auditory receptors, and so on. The complex fabric of knowledge produced in that way makes possible predictions of further sensory data. Quine's account is integrated with a behaviorist conception of language and language learning, and with a Darwinian account of the fundamental kind of learning through which we became able or become able to produce theories. Quine's account would back up the objection that I sketched a few minutes ago. It provides an explanation of what it is for a concept to prove its worth cognitively. Thus, for example, you can, on the basis of Quine's account, show how the rational and irrational numbers prove their worth cognitively. This is a matter of the vital role they play in enabling us to impose structure on the flux of sensory stimulation. But then we can see the contrast with the sort of humanistic learning that I described. From the Quinean point of view, the trouble with a humanistic approach is that it invites us to welcome all sorts of things into a supposedly cognitive repertoire without subjecting them to the kind of test that the numbers pass. The numbers pass the test by playing a role in scientific theory construction. Well, see this if you can, as Iris Murdoch would. Quine's naturalism is a particular sort of view of what it is for one's thought about the world to become better, to become more responsive to experience. For thought to be more responsive to experience, 
is simply for us to have more predictively powerful scientific theories. There is no room in this account for there to be anything in the realm of the cognitive that does not play a role in our capacity to develop scientific theories. There is a very good description of Quine's view provided by Peter Hilton. For Quine, all knowledge is in the same line of work. That picture of human beings as knowers fits with Quine's metaphysics. And as Murdoch points out, <clears throat> there is a kind of circularity that such metaphysical systems all have, including her own. Part of the circularity that we need to be aware of is in the idea of the empirical significance of some conceptual tool. As for example, Quine takes the numbers as conceptual tools to have proved their empirical worth through their usefulness in predictive theories. Murdoch does not deny that the empirical significance of our concepts is important, but for her, empirical significance would lie in the role that a concept has in enabling us to think well about human life and experience, and that is not defined in terms of scientific mastery. So both Murdoch and Quine can tie the empirical significance of a conceptual tool to its role in the kind of thinking they take to be responsive to experience, but they have utterly different conceptions of what it is for the body of our thought to be responsive to experience. We are so used to the sort of empiricism we see in the philosophical tradition of empiricism, and for example, in Quine's development of the tradition, that we don't see the possibility of an altogether different understanding of empiricism, of responsiveness to experience. And just as Murdoch provides a profoundly different understanding <clears throat> of what it might be for philosophy to be empirical, responsive to human experience, she also provides a different understanding from Quine's of two other key terms, naturalism and psychology. These are central in Quine's network of ideas, but also understood differently in Murdoch's. Her sort of empiricism can certainly be thought of as naturalistic, as she herself did, for example, in Vision and Choice. And she also operates with a totally different conception of psychology from Quine's. Quine takes psychology to be part of natural science, and he conceives it in a basically behaviorist way. I can't here give anything like a full account of how Murdoch sees human psychology, <clears throat> but one part of it is that we are beings who use pictures, and we can see how this would apply to Quine. He operates <clears throat> with a picture of human psychology, a picture of the human being as knower, subjected to surface irritations and building up theories on that basis. And that is what Murdoch thinks of as a stripped down conception of human beings. Murdoch then sees philosophers like Quine as having a picture of human life, a picture that is not forced on us by science or the sciences. It is a picture to which there are alternatives. There's no coercion here. Empiricist philosophy of the kind, kind represented by Quine cannot dictate to moral philosophy how to picture human beings 
or how to investigate human psychology. <clears throat> but at this point, we can imagine that the objection I laid out earlier could pop back up. The objector might say something like this. If we accept the kind of view Quine takes, we have at least some idea what the standards are for something to count as knowledge. But if we treat humanistic discourse as supposedly cognitive, there is a question where we would get any standards for judging what is genuinely an improvement in our capacity to think about things. The objection then that is popping back up is that there are no genuine standards for the invitational business, the invitational way of thinking that I described. I would argue that the objection depends on ignoring the kinds of standards we do have. The objection takes the fact that we don't have the sorts of standards available in science to mean that we don't have any standards. But here's where we need to look at how Murdoch herself responds. She takes herself to be confronting people who accept a deeply behaviorist view of psychology and who take it to be adequate for moral philosophy. And she develops the famous example of M and D to bring out what is missing from the behaviorist picture of moral life. M is the English mother-in-law who has always thought her son married beneath him. D is a daughter-in-law M has always thought of as a silly, vulgar girl. But her behavior towards D has always been perfect. She has always been kind and warm and has kept her opinion of D entirely to herself. In the example, as Murdoch develops it, M comes to examine her own attitudes and comes to realize how deeply they have been shaped by jealousy and snobbery. She tries to see D as she really is without the prejudices that have colored her view. In the example, D is conceived as no longer around. Maybe she's dead or she's gone off to Australia or whatever. The point of the example is that M's change, which is an inner change, not a change in behavior, can, despite being an entirely interchange, it can be a moral achievement. And the idea of an interchange not accompanied by behavioral change as a moral achievement, there's no room for that idea in the behaviorist account of moral life and moral psychology, hence the importance of the example for Murdoch. Anyway, Murdoch is arguing for the greater empirical adequacy of her moral psychology and at the same time, she is changing the idea of what empirical adequacy should be understood to be. She invites us to judge behavioristic moral psychology as inadequate to experience in the light of reflection on her example. And she sets out quite explicitly standards, the standards by which her reflection on moral experience should be judged, her account should be compared with others and judged on its, quote, power to connect, to illuminate, to explain, and to make new and fruitful places for reflection. That's in the handout. So that's a statement of a set of cognitive criteria for judging a way of thinking about the psychology of moral life. That means 
that when she gives us her example of M and D, she takes her readers to be able to reflect critically on her account and other accounts and to judge these accounts by standards that involve bringing, in our, bringing into view our own experience and connecting it with what we may have learned from Tolstoy or George Eliot or many, many others. So I'm presenting Murdoch herself as engaging in a cognitive activity of trying to think well about moral life and moral experience. She is providing standards by which her own philosophy and that of others can be judged. I've described her as engaging in a form of empiricist philosophy, altogether different from what we think of as empiricism. Judged by empiricist standards of the kind she invokes, the empiricism of the empiricist tradition is profoundly unsatisfactory in its treatment of moral life. That's her argument. <clears throat> There's one further point about the whole issue of standards before I come to the end of this section. The objection to the humanistic approach was that only through the sort of standards that have been developed in the sciences can we distinguish between concepts and ideas that help to make our thought genuinely responsive to experience and concepts and ideas that we merely like or find attractive. Although the point about standards is presented in the objection as if there were some kind of neutral philosophical basis for judgment, the point in fact reflects a particular kind of moral outlook. And that's what is indeed at issue in Murdoch's example of M and D. As she sees the kind of objection I have set out, that sort of objection she sees as reflecting a particular conception of knowledge and of the facticity of the world. The objection comes out of a worldview. It is a part of a, what Murdoch refers to as a deep conceptual configuration. And one of Murdoch's aims is to make us aware of it as a particular worldview, one that is culturally entrenched and that is by no means morally neutral. The standards as the objection recommends are profoundly morally loaded. Conclusions. My talk today more or less ignored all but one of the points on my list at the beginning. And really all of the points would have to come into any account of how Murdoch sees philosophical activity and how it can be judged. Secondly, I've described Murdoch's approach as a kind of empiricism free of the demand that that requires philosophy to engage with the empirical sciences. Now that is actually a negative description and Murdoch's own approach is only one of the possibilities here. There is room for various different understandings of what it is to reflect on experience and to bring that reflection to bear on philosophy. Thirdly, there is Strawson. He argued the illumination we get when we think about desert, responsibility, guilt, and justice, when we attend to the complicated web of feelings and attitudes that he described. And that is to ask for judgment of the same sort that Murdoch asks for. Like Murdoch, he is engaged in an activity that is not in the same line of work as the science of psychology, and that isn't to be judged by the same standards. And this is what I think goes against many current habits of thought about philosophy. We take for granted that philosophy, 
so far as it is a posteriori, is either included in science or is basically like science. And the alternative view, as we usually think of it, is that philosophy is not a posteriori, but is an a priori study of some kind. See the last quotation in the handout. Papineau thinks that for philosophy to be a posteriori just is for it to depend on empirical support in the same way the sciences do. But my argument today has been that there's no reason philosophy cannot be a posteriori in a very in a great variety of different ways. The very idea of an invitational method in philosophy, a method in which we are invited to reflect on our experience and on the experience that others have reflected on, in which we are invited also to consider suggested ways of thinking about things and describing things and to judge whether they illuminate our experience. This method is not argued against or explicitly rejected in philosophical discussion. It's just not seen as a possibility. It's invisible. It's almost totally outside the discussions we have about what we do as philosophers. So what I try to do today is to make it visible and to make clear also Murdoch's deep engagement with the forces in our thinking that make for its invisibility. I'm aware that I've presented this in a way that responds particularly to forces within analytic philosophy. And so I think this also helps us to see Murdoch's kind of critical position within and yet in many ways deeply critical of, maybe even antagonistic to analytic philosophy. Okay, that's the end.